Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey everyone and welcome back to another episode. Now, with a lot of families comes the deeper underlying conversations that are not as normalized or spoken about in a lot of cultures or societies. The topic of domestic violence amongst family members. Now, it is very much a silent epidemic and we're going to hopefully be looking into it a little bit more. Now, to help me answer some questions and to give some guidance into our conversation is collaborative counselor and therapist Huey Wen Tong. Thank you so much for joining me today, Huey Wen. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Now, as a therapist, what is your role in assisting individuals or families dealing with domestic violence? Okay. So when it comes to dealing with domestic violence, it comes to two parts. One is the aggressor. I mean, against many contradicting it may sound, the aggressor, they do feel guilty and there's a sense of shame for abusing their family members. And the second part would be dealing with the victims, the one getting abused. Yes. Mm. So my my job is to help the aggressor to stop doing that and to, for the other side of um, thing, would to help the victim to start holding their ground, start not fighting back, more like learning how to, what what to do when it happens, or what can they do to cope with their own feelings or emotions when after after the event, for example. And I was looking into some of your practice a little bit more, and it was very interesting to see that in your in the environment and in during the sessions that you have two rabbits in the sessions with you alongside, sort of just helping that environment. And how does that sort of make the place a little bit more um, secure? Good question. Um, one of the reasons why I use rabbits instead of dogs or cats because they don't make any sound. They are prey animals. They are naturally anxious. So I use them as an analogy to how we respond to stresses, uh, how they have fight, flight, freeze response, just like us. I use that um, as a tool to help my clients to relate. And it also creates a sense of, um, I mean, who, they like rabbits. Most of my, I mean, 100% of my clients, they like rabbits. And when they see something cute and fluffy, they I can see straight away there's a sense of relief and there's a safe, safe place for them to be. So it's like a, a lot of their walls just fall down the minute that they see the rabbits because they're a bit more vulnerable and able to be vulnerable. Wow. It's amazing because it's kind of like when you hear the goat yoga, how that sort of you use yoga, but you use goats alongside it, you use animals alongside it to sort of make it feel a little bit more able to be normal and react normal and not be as tense in different sessions so no that that's an amazing technique that when I read that I'm like I have to share that because that's such an unique way of allowing the allowing your client to be a little bit more 
um, vulnerable, a little bit more open to having a conversation. Now, that's such a great introduction into our topic today, but before we get started and discuss it even further, I would love to get to know some of your recommendations as well as some of your interests by playing our channel's favorite little icebreaker. Okay. Now to start off with, what is the most recent book that you've read? Okay, the, the book I'm currently reading is Body, The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Basil van der Kolk, K-O-L-K. So I've, I've read the book three times. I'm rereading it because I really enjoy the way he talked about how people manage trauma and in the past and how the term PTSD comes about. So I, I'm reading that book now. Okay. Wow. Now that sounds really interesting. So does it look into, um, just, does it just look into trauma? Does it just look at how your body sort of deals with trauma or... Mm. It, does, it talks about how the society views it as well and what are the um, evolution of the treatment in terms of people with trauma because back then they have no idea like those symptoms were tra- based on trauma. They just mm-hmm. think that this person is crazy. Yeah. Wow. No, that that's, that's amazing how we sort of use that analogy and build up on it and build up on what we... Um, used to know what we now know. So it's amazing contrast as to how our views of trauma have changed. Yes. Now, what is a movie that you would recommend to our viewers today? A movie. uh, Awakening. Have you ever watched that movie? Awakening by Robbie Williams. I don't think... Let me see see real quick. Have I seen it? Oh, yes, I have seen that. Yeah. Yes. I quite like that movie. No, I, I, can, de- I can definitely understand that. I think it's a great, it's a great look into um, different psychiatric mm. sort of disorders and how society really sees them. So no, that's really interesting. <laughs> yes. Now, could you name a podcast that has stood out to you? A podcast that stood out to me? Mm. I follow Stephanie Rake. I'm not sure whether you heard of her. She is a relationship coach. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I have heard of her. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's the podcast I, I'm, I'm listening and I feel it's very helpful for me to understand or to further build on what my understanding of human relationships. <laughs> okay. That, no, that sounds like a really deep, deep listen. Yes. Really heavy listen to. <laughs> yes, it's a heavy one. Now, during your academic pursuit, has there been one course that has really stuck to you and has really molded into what you view your job today? It's a good question because I think one of the most impactful course or module I've learned in Monash was the the first module actually was Introduction to Counseling. It was impactful because it formed a an understanding, understanding of how counseling should look like. It's more than just talking, it's more than just offering a space for a client, but it's also mirroring. It's also noticing the small little things that the client is not quite sharing and noticing the body language and yeah, and all these little, little things. I find it quite impactful because it sets the tone for me in understanding counseling. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like becoming a detective in a way. Yes. That's a good way. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's a really cool sort of aspect to it where you have to just see more than it's you're sort of becoming a um Agatha Christie kind of detective sort of trying to discover what's deeper underlying what they're not saying. So no, that's a really that's that's also a really um positive and negative skill to have in the social world as well where you're sort of among friends you're sort of a bit easier to see what's yes. going on. Yes, yes. It's a double-edged sword, I would yeah. say. It has to be applied uh, mindfully. Yeah. Yes, it's not It's not for the weak-minded, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, I know that everyone has a very different view as to what family is and what's important about a family. What do you think that your definition of family would be? My definition of a family would be a place to feel safe a place to feel safe and a place to fulfill certain needs, not just a physical need for food, for shelter, but a place to meet emotional needs, such as validation, reassurance, making someone known that you are important. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's my definition of a family. No, that's that's a really, so it's like kind of like a safe space for, for individuals. Yeah, like a secure base. Yeah, that's perfect. I love that way of saying that. Now, with that definition in mind, do you think that it's still family and your definition of family still holds the same importance as it has done in the past? I would say so. The the importance of a family has never changed. It never changed because I feel that it sets the tone for societal norms. It sets the tone for culture, how we see the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's how we, our very first interactions started from within our family. And from there, we, we know we translate those skills that we picked up, communication skills we picked up from a family, and we apply, apply them when we become a working member of the society. Mm-hmm. And I know that I, earlier on in the show, when introducing the topic of today, I did sort of mention it as a silent epidemic. I mentioned domestic violence as a silent epidemic. Why do we often, why is it referred to as that? And that's usually the sort of cultural and societal way of it being described. Why has it gotten to a point where it's now becoming acknowledged as an epidemic? I feel that COVID brought up a lot of things. I think COVID brought out of a lot of, um, a lot of things and it highlighted how domestic violence is very prevalent. It's just not being talked enough, talked about enough. Mm-hmm. Like, and everyone, uh, we were forced to be at home. We we have to quarantine ourselves. And when we stay at home more, it means that we will be interacting a lot with our family members. And to those with family violence history, it aggravated aggravated the whole situation during COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is a silent epidemic because the victim of, of the abuse, they don't quite feel empowered to stand up for themselves, to protect themselves. And for the aggressor, they, sadly to say, is usually a close family member, like a parent that, that does that to uh, the victim. And usually with that, it comes a lot of power play, power play in a family, family violence so mm-hmm. for the victim, they, and this often a part of them feels like, oh, I can't blame my family member. I can't, I can't badmouth my parent, for example. So it's, 
it's silent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you're referring to domestic violence, you're not just saying, okay, it's between a mother and a father or it's between two parents. You're also referring it to as something that's a parent and a child or um, a grandparent and a child or a caregiver and a child. So is it, so when we're sort of saying, especially today when we're talking about domestic violence, you're not just talking about one situation of domestic violence. There are a whole, a lot of different situations of domestic violence that we even still yet really talk about and understand as violence in a family. Yes, because violence can come in so many forms besides it being the obvious, the physical violence. It can be emotional, emotional violence, um, like a child being deprived of affection, being neglected, or the wife or the husband um, feeling underappreciated to the point where you're just becoming the ATM for the family, sort of thing like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's so interesting to me because as we talk about domestic violence, and I think just before this, I was probably a little bit more ignorant to it when thinking that this is a conversation about domestic violence between a mother and a father or between two spouses or between two spouses, but it's a whole lot more to that. And there's a whole lot more that I didn't even really think about until just then when it comes to the conversation and what we're suppo- what we're supposedly talking about today. And so how would you go ahead and describe the dynamic of domestic violence within families? The dynamic, I feel that, okay, there's always an, an aggressor and mm. aggressor or suppressor. And there's another role of like being the victim, basically the victim of the abuse who would make himself or herself really small and feeling undeserving. And so there's this power dynamic there between the the aggressor and the victim. Mm-hmm. So when talking about, I think you're just sort of describing it a little bit when it comes to the oppressor and the suppressor. That is, is that two different ways in their violence against the pri- against the victim? Oops, sorry. Um, okay. Uh, the viol- I don't see them as two different ways, but I feel that this usually when a, an event that is so big, like a shouting, like shouting or like physical abuse or emotional abuse, it causes the other the other person to suppress their voice, they suppress their want for safety, want for food, for example. So yeah, there's, there's, there's this dynamic going on. Okay. So what are some common misconceptions that are sort of associated with um, the kind of dynamics that we're talking about today? The misconceptions you mean? Yes. Okay. Um, I feel that the common misconception when it comes to family violence is that it is always the aggressor's fault or it's always the, there's always a lot of blaming, but they, when they come to understand that it is actually an intergenerational family problem that persists generation after generation that has been so, um, ingrained into their parenting style or relationship styles that that need, needed more focus on because a lot of people just it's, 
it's quite black and white. There's always a who's right, who's wrong, who's so. In therapy, what we do is we explore different dynamics happening. So that we don't say who's right, who's wrong, but mm-hmm. we explore what's really happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's it's. I'm going to say it's interesting a lot because it really is to me, especially sort of dealing with the. Um, it's sort of like authority figure versus person that they're meant to be looking after, and I think especially when we look at look about the oppressor in a way of okay in the domestic violence situation you sort of automatically think it's physical violence attached but there's so much more uh, into it where there could be so how would we go ahead and separate a parent that's just yelling at a child to a parent that's oppressing a child okay well yelling is just the act of yelling Mm -hmm. from a parent to a child and the yelling could be coming from a place of safety, like, hey, don't do stop that, don't do that, you know, coming from a place of safety. Mm-hmm. But suppressing is a total different level. Suppressing would mean that you are not allowing the child to express himself and herself. Like, for example, um, you shouldn't cry in public. You you are not allowed to cry because you're a man, you know, th- things like you're a boy, don't act like a girl, things things like that. That is quite suppressing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just the act, it's primarily the act of, okay, I'm going to take away a lot of your character and make it exactly what I want you to be. Yes. Okay, so there's it gets to that point, that's sort of when it becomes a little bit of a um, violent suppression, oppression kind of dynamic. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Almost as if they are the parent or the parental figure or the, even the, for the spouse, they start viewing their spouses or their kids as an extension of themselves like if this is what I believe in or what I feel is correct you too should behave a certain way according to what I think mm-hmm. so that happened a lot okay within families so when it comes to a domestic violence situation especially if it's going between for example the two spouses it was a mother and a father how does that violence sort of impact children in those affected families and sort of change their dynamic when it comes to um, who they see as, who the children see as being the oppressor and being the victim? Okay. So this is a good question because I see that a lot in sessions with clients. So with clients who are exposed to family violence between the father and mother or mother and mother, father and father, they feel they kind of blame themselves. Some, some some of them would blame themselves for it to happen because I'm a bad child. I couldn't protect mom, or I I make my dad angry. Therefore, my my dad took it out on my mom. Sort sort of thing. So it created such a a feeling for the child, and also for for some clients, they they experience what we call parentification. Parentification happens when there's a role reversal, right? Well, there's a role reversal between the child and the parent, where the, the child starts to take care take, take care of the parent. The parent is hurt mm-hmm. from the violence. Okay. And when it comes to if you if that sort of happens, and I'm going to gonna just assume that the child sort of somehow becomes a lot more protective of that parent against the other parent. So it sort of pits that violence can somehow pit the children against another parent and yes pretty much take sides correct they're forced to take sides 
which is mm-hmm. quite sad because they are both he, his or her parents and yeah. the child really doesn't want to make a choice. Yeah. yeah. No, because it's, it's, to me, when I'm thinking about it, there's a whole lot of one parent that when you talk about estrangement, for example, there's that whole long-term uh, impact of those children not wanting anything to do with that parent or not wanting any contact with that parent, um, especially if a divorce were to happen between the two parents that obviously stay on one side and you wouldn't hear from the other side. So in your when you're sort of going through your work, when it comes to you talking to that parent that has been distant, that has been the oppressor for so many years, what is their what is their realization that makes them realize that it was because of them that they their children no longer talk to them? And I think most aggressor or be- the parent who abused their kids, they a part of them, they feel ashamed of doing that. They feel guilty and they would want the relationship back with their children. But oftentimes what we do in family sessions, we try to facilitate that reconnection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, they so as they get older, they feel alone. They feel alone in because they didn't have their kids around and they, didn't, they don't have any many family support. That's when they start seeking help. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of when it gets too late, that's when they sort of start reaching out. And are there cases where the kids do reunite with that parent and sort of build a relationship with them a bit more? Yes. Do you mm-hmm. mind if I share a case with you. Yes, no, I would love that. I would love to hear that. So um, I have this client who is now a working adult. He's close to his 50s. So he has not spoken to his mom for 20 years when he mm-hmm. first came to see me. So he was telling me about a story when he was just a teen. He was a teenager then and he stole some books from a bookshop. Then the bookshop person called the parent, the mom saying that, uh, hey, I, your child your child stole some books from me. Uh, I'm going to take him to the police station. If you're not coming down to pick him up, I, I, I need you to pay for the books, yada, yada. But the mom just said, I'm busy right now. I'm busy right now with my work. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what a child felt at the time? You know, it's so, you felt abandoned. You feel like you're not important to your mom and things like that. So that happened. And he was brought to the police station. And because he's of legal age, 60, of that mm-hmm. age. Yeah, then, uh, so what happened was the godmother came down to bail him out. Then when at home, he, he instead of consoling or comforting the child, my client then, the mom actually asked him to prove me that you're not going to do it again. So what he did was he got a chopper and chopped off his finger got a chop on his finger. It was quite bad. It was quite a scene as he was describing it to me. It was quite vivid in his head. It was recalling those memories. So after that incident, eventually, I mean, they went to the doctor and sealed the finger back and everything. But after that, he stopped talking to the mom. Yeah. But so I, I asked I asked him why he came to see me and he wanted to, he wanted to reconcile. He wanted to reconcile with the mom because he didn't realize as he grew older, he realized that 
the mom didn't have it easy as well because the mom also experienced uh, some beating, some beating from the dad, and the mom was working. The mom was a sole breadwinner for the family, so she was under a lot of stress, and the dad should be the one taking care of the of my client then. So I contacted the mother. I contact contacted her, and she was very surprised. She was very willing to come down and speak to the son. She was very willing to talk about what happened in the past, and to be consoled. So it was a good story, good ending. Yeah, no, that. So how many years that they haven't been, they hadn't been speaking? Twenty. Wow. So that took twenty yeah. years to, I think, for him to really understand her side of the story and well, willing that, to, yeah, yeah. because of a lot of anger, a lot of um, yeah, a lot of anger. Yeah. I don't want to deal with this person anymore. No. Of. I mean, you can definitely see both sides. You can see the mother's side about her being overworked, but you could also see the child's side about her not... The person that he was wanting the most to be there for him just wasn't there at that time, even though it was the dad's responsibility. I mean, I think the connection between a child and the mother is very, very different. So you sort of expect, you sort of hope that your mother would be there for you in times that you would need her. So that is a... That is a very deep story. And especially this is very much what we're talking about today when it comes to our conversation about reconciliation. And it's thank you so much for sharing that. That's such a great story for um, for a look into an example of what we're talking about. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for allowing me. Now, when it comes to preventative measure, measures that can be taken, are there any and also some intervention strategies that can be implemented to break the cycle of domestic violence within families? Mm. Well, depending on the level of severity, if um, if at all the child reaches out for help, that would be great. It means that the child is given, is given somebody else a, a chance to take a look at what's really happening. Mm-hmm. So I once, um, I had the opportunity to, to have a session to have a session with a child who is ex- whom the dad was throwing knives at him at home when he's angry and drunk he would throw knives at him and he c- got cut so he was i think i i'm not sure whether he's lucky or i'm un- i'm lucky i he he met i i actually reported he, to the, the dad to the police with consent from the mom mm-hmm. so one of the preventative measures would be to get help but it's very hard for for victims to get help I would say because there's so many factors to it. There's a lot of shame for exposing your family and you know to that. So it's so hard for these people to get help. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely think one of the other things would also be the fact that a lot of children don't see it as domestic violence. They don't see it as what the parent is doing until you get to be an adult and then you sort of see it after it's made an impact on you that you for example, don't want to be in a relationship or don't want to have a family or don't want to experience what it is to be a parent because in fear that you turn out to be like them. There's that whole lot of deep impact that doesn't hit you when you're a child. But when you're a child, you sort of see it as, okay, this is how my parent parents. It may not be how I like it, but it's definitely not violence. Yes. Yeah, good good way is it's, it's a good point that you brought up how 
so when when they're a child, they don't see it as a problem. They don't see it as a problem because it's so normalized for them. Yeah, yes. my dad is just angry with me. Even for the spouse, like I've had uh, clients coming in to see me, couples couples coming in to see me talking about how the 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 husband or the wife actually would like really. I, I saw it happening in front of my eyes sometimes in sessions where the couples would break into a fight and start being violent towards each other. So that happened as well. So the preventive is to prevent something, is to first be aware of it. They need to know that this is not normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially if it's ingrained in you since you were a child as well. That's sort of how your parents deal with arguments and that's how you end up dealing with arguments. So yeah, know that there's, it's a very difficult thing to cycle to break for as well. Absolutely very very tough when it's normalized and sometimes we like we like it or not we unconsciously internalized behaviors from our parents our subconscious mind just pick up little things how our parents deal with uh, stress how they deal with the conflict we we pick those things up but somehow like i've realized from observing a lot of my friends and some of my family somehow we pick up the actions of the louder parent. We don't pick up the actions of the quieter parent. The quieter parent is sort of just sits there and deals with things slowly and thinks about things. But you focus a lot more on the parent that you're sort of more around. And if that person is, if that parent is more around, that is a bit more um, violent, a bit more vocal, a bit louder than normal parents then that's sort of the actions that you would pick up yeah good point because it's more about you brought that point more around yes they're closer to the parent that is more present that's more at home with them even though even though it could be the the violent parent they do pick Mm -hmm. things up from the violent parents Mm -hmm. and how can families sort of effectively navigate that different challenges posed by domestic violence that in order in order to foster an environment that sort of promotes healing and ultimately breaks from that cycle of abuse? I feel that as a society, we need to be more okay talking about such things. We need to be more okay talking about family violence, more okay talking about depression, anxiety, trauma, so that we can really pr- when there, there is more awareness with uh, among people around us, they, they can help us spot things when things are not quite right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually really agree with that. I think when we say like when I'm reading cycle of abuse, there's that whole idea of it takes so many generations in order to break the cycle. It takes so many. You can learn from one, but then suddenly you're dealing with okay, you can learn from one mistake that your parents made, but I think, and I've heard about this for so long, is that you can only heal from one thing and then your children will deal with the other things that you'll have to, that you somehow still haven't dealt with. So that's the scary thing about being a parent is the fact that you won't want to do one thing that way. Like, for example, if your whole family deals with five different types of negative abuse that can sort of damage a child. You can deal with the physical abuse, but Mm -hmm. 
but you still have those four things that you can't ultimately deal with until afterwards and that you're still trying to heal from. So it's a very, it's a very long cycle that is something that I've learned. Yes, it's a long cycle also because it's the brain likes, the brain feels that what is familiar is safe, even though it's not a good safe kind of thing. So that's where we start attracting partners like our parents. There's this term from this book I learned called trauma reenactment, where we reenact those family dynamics, relationship dynamics with our partners. So there's this pattern replaying all over again, the way we communicate, the way way we interact with one another. And it plays out because that is perceived as a a familiarity in the brain. And we, we do that. So it's very hard to break the brick that cycle, you're right. Oh, it is it is a scary thing to sort of be to go into relationships, especially not knowing this and not knowing the different patterns that you have picked up or that you have dealt with. And a lot of us, like especially um I've talked to a lot of my friends about this because we all have pretty much the same um little hints of I mean, in, in this case, you would call it abuse, little violence against us or little um, parental traumas that sort of happened. And somehow all of us have shared the same set, the same list that goes down. But it's it's so strange because you think about it and if it's such a big thing that a lot of us are sort of realizing, there's still a lot of healing that goes into it. There's still a lot of... Um, time that it takes to really even understand what it was that point that really got you to want to to behave like that well i'm happy to hear that uh you talk about such things with your friends it creates um like you start seeing the commonalities like it's like common oh oh you had that too oh i had that too that's it creates a form of relevance i say oh yeah it makes you feel less alone and you start realizing that oh there's actually nothing wrong with me yeah, I think when you, when you, I think all of my friends, when we get to about 25, 26 and we're still single, there's a reason why. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it, yes. Now we're going to move on to our practice and habit part of the show. And just as some of your own practices, but also could be a practice that you recommend to a lot of your clients as well to practice regularly. Now, what coping strategies or practices would you recommend for individuals who have experienced domestic violence? Okay, for individual who, individuals who have experienced domestic violence, my, my, I encourage them to have a voice, to communicate for themselves instead of zipping up and walk around eggshells, you know, just to avoid that fight or confrontation is to really stand up for themselves. So when they start communicating their need, I need you to stop doing this, for example, that gives them a voice and give them a sense of autonomy because individuals who experience family violence, they, their sense of autonomy is really affected because they don't feel that they're almost, they don't feel deserved. They don't feel that they're a person almost. Mm-hmm. No, that's a really good one because I've seen a lot of people who are, their personality becomes very timid and very quiet and not at all able to even share how what they think 
I know a lot of my friends who were sort of asking, okay, where do you feel like going to eat? They have a certain place in mind, but they're never that person that goes ahead and says, this is what they feel like. They just follow along and now we're having to force them to decide where we're going because it sort of gets them out of their own shell when, at least when they're around us. Yes. Yes. Like getting themselves out of their own shell and also um, knowing that what happened to us, they what ha- whatever happened to us, they don't get to define who we want to be. If we don't like what happened and how it makes us feel timid and um, very low self-esteem and whatnot, we don't have to let those things define us. We can <laughs> redefine who we want ourselves to be. No, that's a really good point. I, I, I love redefine. Redefine, <laughs> I think, is a big word. Now, what are three good things about going through this practice of standing up for yourself? Three good things about standing up for yourself. Number one, you're acknowledging yourself. I think most people who struggle with domestic violence, they they don't see, they don't give credit to themselves like enough to what they have struggled with, how they how they're still alive at this point. Mm-hmm. So the one good thing is to give acknowledgement. It gives acknowledgement to themselves, and when they voice out, they communicate. They communicate. Then how to really hold their ground and protect themselves, right? So there's mm-hmm. a thing called words sharper than swords. I, I believe that, yeah. Uh, number three would be when we voice out, that's how we get help. If we if we don't voice out, we won't get help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a perfect list. And I love, I love everything. I love everything you said there because I think it's something that um, I've seen firsthand and I've experienced it and just sort of seeing that you need to even just give yourself that tiny bit of credit. And I think a lot of people don't. And you can tell the people that do, you can tell the people that don't. It's very obvious thing as well when you're sort of just seeing, okay, this person just doesn't really want to even acknowledge the fact that they've worked hard and they've earned something or they've gotten out of bed or they've done even the smallest things that they still don't want to say they're proud for because it's something that they feel like they're supposed to do anyway. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So what would you say in contrast to that are the challenges that you find yourself seeing when trying to go through and standing up for yourself? So most of the times when they start standing up for themselves, one of the challenges they would face would be rejection. Like it would be, you shouldn't feel that way. You, what happened to you? Why are you suddenly, you know, being so ballsy about yourself? You know, things, things like that. They will, they will get such response from people around them when they're first standing up for themselves. But my, my suggestion is to persist, to persist in standing up for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I, I second that. I think you need to, you really do need to really stand up for yourself. It's it's too important to think that you can get through the world without doing that, especially in any career that you want to do as well. Like you need to be able to say, I deserve that promotion. I deserve that, um, I deserve that raise. I deserve to have a better parking spot. Like knowing the stuff that you deserve comes from that as well. Yes. Yes. I can't believe I said parking spot. That's the best thing I could think of. 
Go on though. Yeah. So how do you think that this, the practice of really standing up for yourself and having a voice impacts your understanding of family as well as your understanding of life? So I feel when we give ourselves a voice, what we are doing, we are strengthening or we are developing or redeveloping our sense of self. When we have strong sense of self, it translates through our relationship or interactions with family members. And when we start having healthy communication styles within the family, healthy habits of resolving fights, it translates to the society. So society around us. Yeah, no, no, that's perfect. I think that that's that's a great way of saying it because it really does impact how other people perceive you, how you perceive other people, and also how everyone interacts with you. They, I think there's a lot more respect out there for people who really do stand up for themselves because suddenly it's like, okay, you know what your worth is then I can actually give that to you or I can, okay, I understand where you're coming from. It's honestly, I think I, the one best thing that I've learned is you bet it's better to ask for an apology than ask for attention or ask for any kind of, um, am I allowed to do this? It should be like, I'm sorry for doing this rather than am, am I allowed to do this? Yes. That's a cool way to put it. Yes. When we ask for an apology, you're also saying that you're also acknowledging your hurt, right? You're acknowledging your hurt and say, I deserve an apology from you. Yeah, exactly. Now, this moves on really easily to our open mic section of the show, which is the very last section. Now, this gives you a chance to talk about anything that you are passionate about. It can be, we can keep talking about this topic or something that maybe we didn't get to speaking to speaking about in this topic today. Uh, it could be anything that you have on mind that you want to share with us as well. So in the last minute, I'd love to give you the floor and hear what's on your mind. <laughs> um, I'm currently reading more about interactions. Like I was following this podcast by Stephanie Rigg and she talks about how the anxious and the anxious often attracts avoidant people in their lives. Like how, um, for example, um, a partner, this is what I notice in my couple sessions as well, when one couple is usually, one partner is usually more anxious and the other is just avoidant, meaning to say that um, emotionally avoidant. So the anxious one would be chasing for validation, chasing for reassurance, and often that translates to lack of trust in the relationship. And that's where the avoidant partner would just withdraw and withdraw because it's too o- overwhelming, too overwhelming. And it's, it feels almost controlling by the avoidant partner. And I, going back to the family violence, um, for, for individuals who have experienced with family violence, it creates, it's quite anxiety inducing anxiety inducing because you don't know when's the next time you'll be abused you don't know when is the next good day to have so it's very anxious very anxiety inducing so i see it in the couples that come to see me the anxious anxious individual would have moments where it's it's like that that's inconsistent secure base where there are times where there are good days and there are times where there are really, really really bad days and it it, tra- it yeah it translates into the relationship where 
the experience of the avoidant partner was totally different. They don't have such background. Therefore, they, they couldn't relate to their partner and things like that. So that's what I'm currently interested in. No, that's a really interesting way, especially the two different. I think relationships are very interesting because it's two completely different people who have dealt with two completely different situations in life coming together and having two different ways of communicating. And it's it's so interesting when you see, like I see a lot of my friends, they have different dynamics as to how they deal with situations. Like for example, if someone is, um, if she's having a fight with her, with her, one of her friends, he will immediately be like, okay, so what are you guys saying? Rather than her and her saying, okay, I need support on your side. I need you to be on my side rather than figuring out a solution. I need you to just be there for me. And there's that huge confusion as to what each partner is really expecting. So like relationships are really big one. And it's, it's a really interesting topic to sort of go into. And I could get stuck in talking about that because there's so many different ways, so many different dynamics in, in relationships as well that impact how, not only how you see your partner, but how you see yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How you see yourself. Yeah. The way they interact with themselves. Also, when we talk about relationship, it's not just external relationship, but also relationship with themselves. Most of the time, they, people, coming from a, for example, going back to family violence, coming from a place where your needs were not met, you don't know how to meet your own needs, right? Because it was not mirrored to you. It wasn't taught to you how to meet your needs. So, yeah. No, that's in that's interesting. And I love how you brought it back to the topic. <laughs> no, that's, it's, it's such a great way. It is such a great conversation. And I do want to thank you so much for joining me on the show. Um, it's been, honestly, I love talking about deep issues like this because there's so many aspects to it and it it's so much deeper than a lot of people really think. When you think of family violence, like I did earlier today and we're talking about domestic violence and suddenly there's, it's now in my head, it's not just between a mother and a father, it's now between a parent and a child, a child towards a parent maybe. It could be so many different ways that we didn't even get to talking about today. Now, if there's a way that audiences would like to maybe talk about something that I haven't mentioned or expand on something with you that I didn't get to talking about, is there contact information that I'm able to give out to them in order to get in contact with you? Yes, they can always go to my website. Is, okay. that, is that what you were asking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can go to my website. Um, they ha so in my website, they can find my socials. My socials are there. They can reach out to me anytime. So I'm all about helping people. I'm all about creating an impact, helping them to set up for themselves, redefine themselves. My, do I share my website? Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay, my website is www.stayingsane.com. Sorry, stayingsane101.com. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm going to have that in the uh, description down below just for easy access for all of our audience because I think it's it's important to share. And I, I love I love sharing. That's the whole point of you coming onto the show is to sharing your work and sharing what you do. So, no, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I, I've honestly loved talking about this. Thanks, Lina. Thank you. 
and i hope you guys enjoyed it as much as i did i will see you all in the next episode you've been listening to all together the family science insights podcast produced by the family science labs a division of lmsl the life management science labs more episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching lmsl on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify and other podcasting apps available on your devices If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.